old-timey crimey. I am Christy, and today I am joined by the inimitable, the one, the uh, probably not only because he has kind of a common name, Christopher J. Garcia. Hello. Hello. It's wonderful to be back after so many years. So much <laughs> has changed and stayed the same. Yes, yes, things do that. They both change and they stay the same. One thing that will never, ever change, Chris, is that you are a man with many podcasts. This is true. I do one with a uh, podcaster named uh, Christy Baxter called uh, Short Story Short Podcast. Yes, yes, that's a great one. I love that show. Your co-host is amazing. Yeah, she's not bad. I mean, she's okay. Yeah, she'll work out for now. Um, but <laughs> we're, we're shopping around for uh, just someone with a different vibe. Ouch! That hurt. <laughs> that hurt me in my very soul. <laughs> but yeah, no, and I also do one called uh, Silicon Valley and another one about art called Three Minute Modernist and what about the Winchester Mystery House and on and on and on. Yes, you are the podcast man, seriously. And here you are on our podcast, here to talk about a murder. Is it Murder Most Foul? It is a Murder Most Foul, yes. And it takes place in a magical little village called Freeport in Long Island. Which is remarkable because my wife's grandfather lived in Freeport, Long Island. Interesting. That is fascinating. I'm going to tell you in a minute about a couple other people who uh, have lived there or are from there. Uh, First of all, I'm going to tell you what the Daily News back in the day had to say about the place. Freeport is a thriving little hometown nestling in a pocket but an hour's run from New York City. Hard by the town of Hempstead hives its town workers after the day of toil. Freeport has its town hall, its Elks Club, its fire hall, and the necklace of churches that are always strung about the neck of a residential community. It is a main street town, just as one might find in southern Illinois, rural Massachusetts, or the farming districts of the Great West. Almost in the lap of the metropolis, she holds nothing in common with the Broadwayite, and what gossip rears its head in one quarter of the town is common property before two suns have passed over the western horizon. So it's a small town and gossip moves fast, essentially. Yeah, yeah, now, accurate. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that sounds like a lot of small towns. I grew up in one and I uh, know exactly how that works. The Gossip Express uh, starts in town around 6 a.m. and uh, is done before breakfast, but uh, keeps on moving. So we're going to be talking about generally most of the events take place in 1914. The last census before that was in 1910, and the population was just under 5,000. If you fast forward to the modern day, the people who have come from that village or lived there, uh, such notable people as Cindy Adams, gossip columnist, Flava Flav, Word, Steve Lieberman, a.k.a. the Gangsta Rabbi. Oh, uh, true crime enthusiasts might recognize the name Eric Larson. He is the author of The Devil in the White City. Wonderful writer. Good guy. Yes, yes. Pretty much everyone will recognize the name of Eddie Murphy. Oh, yes. I enjoyed him. Bad, bad for the Orioles. It was a good cleanup hitter. 
Yeah, that that's definitely not him. And um, then there's Billy Murray. Uh, that's uh, everybody knows that that great singer from Vaudeville. Uh, yes. <laughs> and uh, Lou Reed, but you know the actual Lou Reed. I'm not messing with your head anymore. Oh, okay. The one, the one who founded the Velvet Underground. That is the one. And uh, I'm not sure if you'll know this name, but I know that you are into wrestling. Noel Thompson? A name I don't know. He was inducted into the National Wrestling Hall of Fame. So that's that's all they had on him. So uh, it is also home to a number of artists, typically Barnes, uh, one of which was owned by a gentleman whose name I completely forgotten. But uh, was the sculptor of a number of bubblegum sculptures, one very famous one in Washington, D.C., of uh, Mr. Albert Einstein. Are we talking actual sculptures made of bubblegum? Well, they look like bubblegum. They're, they're bronze, but they look like pieces of, he would pull pieces of bronze and then put them onto the sculptures. And they're very, very distinctive. He's very famous for that one and for one of uh, John F. Kennedy, that's at the Kennedy Center. And of Mr. Rogers in Pittsburgh. Oh, neat. That's uh, near me. I, I do have to say, I, I'm sure this nameless gentleman makes wonderful, wonderful sculptures. I am bitterly, bitterly disappointed that they're not made of actual bubblegum. But I think I see <laughs> a little niche where I can insert myself. Yes, Robert Burks. That's his name. Ah, there we go. No longer nameless is the gentleman who makes the bubblegum that isn't bubblegum sculptures. I'm sorry, although I do live nearish to San Luis Obispo, home of Bubblegum Alley, in which people actually do place the gum onto the walls of the alley, and it is now over three inches thick on each side. Wowza. But yeah, they've been doing that since, I think, the 60s. That is some dedication to chewing and placing bubblegum. Correct. So <laughs> my first correct of the episode i'm gonna get more i'm determined this is much longer than short story short podcast <laughs> <laughs> all right so let's talk about the evening of june 30th 1914 a lovely summer's evening upon which happened what the brooklyn times union called about mm, 23 years later the most celebrated of all crimes committed in Nassau County. Ooh, I'm intrigued. So we have, figuring into this crime, a doctor, uh, his patient, a lady from society, who uh, she's referred to as, she's described as a dainty little lady known throughout social circles in Freeport. And uh, also known... Uh, Figuring in this case is the doctor's wife, Florence, who I uh, just refer to as Flo, uh, because the society woman is Louise Lulu Daria Bailey. And so she's Lulu. So I just had to call Florence Flo just for, I don't know, consistency or something. I like it. And so the doctor is Edwin Carmen. And he and Lulu are standing in his office. And Lulu is from about six miles away in the town of Hempstead. Mm -hmm. She actually does have a doctor in her own town. No one could ever say exactly why she went to see Dr. Carmen that day. Now, this summer night is not 
overly hot. So the window is open just a little bit to uh, let some night air in through the screen, cool things down just a bit. And the peace of a quiet suburb street at night is shattered when the screen is ripped off, a gun is thrust through the glass, and a shot is fired. Lulu is hit in the back. I'm sorry, it's motorcycle week here in Johnstown, so I will occasionally be pausing for them to make the, all their noise as they drive past my house. Ah, well, you know, bikers love true crime, and I get it why they're coming to, to listen. I can't blame them myself because uh, this is a this is a good story, and it's got some really interesting aspects to it. So um, they're they're welcome to listen in. And uh, make a lot of noise to make it so I can't even hear myself think or talk. (laughs) So uh, Lulu is hit in the back. The wound will, in fact, be fatal. She was around 37 or 38. R.I.P. Lulu. R.I.P. Lulu. Now, as the shot crashes through the window, the doctor ducks behind a chair. There is another competing narrative where he also catches Lulu as she falls. I don't know how he can do both, so I don't really know which he did. I don't know. It's it's a while before he summons any help. There's a, a doctor right next door who's practicing. He doesn't call him. Um, and then he doesn't call the police for about an hour, maybe more after the shooting. And then when the police do come, some of the times kind of change. He, he tells them that she was shot at 8.23. Really, she was shot sometime before 8. And then the police get there and they're like, well, all your neighbors traipsed across the lawn. So uh, can't really get any evidence of anything that went outside. Any, you know, <laughs> footprints, fun stuff like that. Yeah, you know, I understand why he wouldn't talk to the other doctor because god help the doctor who decides to let someone go and get a uh, reference from another doctor but uh the i question about the cops yeah there, there's a couple questions there i mean i mean i guess he just wasn't big on second opinions maybe you know should i ask somebody else if she's dead no i'm certain of it um so let's talk about this group of people here. Let's get a little bit of background on them. Let's start with Lulu. So Louise Lulu Daria, as she was born, was from the prominent Freeport Daria family. Uh, In 1897, she married William Dowling Bailey. He was a Brooklyn hat manufacturer. Together, they had two children, Madeline in 1898 and Harold in 1901. So in that summer of 1914, when they lost their mother, they were 17 and 12. Uh, Of Lulu, it was said she was pretty popular, fond of society. She did not have an enemy in the world. And she lit up any room she walked into. Exactly. I did try to find more on her, but her married name, Bailey, is a super common name. And even though you wouldn't think Daria, which is spelled D-U-R-Y-E-A, 
isn't so common. It does seem like it was really common among married couples who lived in this region of New York in the early 1900s and then took their relationship troubles to court. Interesting. Or maybe uh, it was just that one couple who kept doing that. Which honestly would make a, the suspect list a lot shorter. Yeah, it really would. Uh, the The case that I glanced at was a wife and it wasn't it wasn't Lulu and her husband. It was, and it wasn't anybody I could see was directly related to them, as far as I could tell. But a wife beating her husband with a slipper, and also uh, apparently this story in that same case made the judge just laugh hysterically. So this couple had a cow that they named Aunt Esther, and the husband was so drunk. And the wife was trying to talk about the cow and tell him they needed to do something about the cow. And he just could not grasp that his wife was talking about the cow and not an actual family member. Um, the cow is a family member. So, well, he was just like, I don't have an aunt, Esther. What are you talking about? You're crazy broad, you know. <laughs> oh, and you do a remarkably good Hempstead accent. I'm very, very pleased. Thank you. Thank you. I wasn't even trying because I didn't know there was one. <laughs> <laughs> it's a regional thing. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure it is. Well, coming from, I mean, I come from Northwest Pennsylvania. It's, you know, kind of uh, hop, skip and several jumps. Yeah, it's interesting. The, uh, the Hempstead accent, uh, as I understand it, is actually defined by sounding exactly like Johnstown. Um, it's Bizarre. Well, no, I come from Northwest. I'm from Warren. No, no, no. Once you move, you acquire it. Oh, okay. All right. All right. Sure, sure, sure. I'm sure I uh, acquired a Hempstead accent by moving to good old Johnstown. <laughs> Perfect. It's it's unquestionable. So, all right. Let's talk about uh, Dr. Edwin Carmen. Yes. Now, according to Find a Grave, spoilers, he is uh, dead, having been born in 1867. Uh, he was the son of Richard and Elizabeth Hewlett Carmen, born, uh, like I said, 1867 in Far Rockaway, Queens County, New York. Far Rockaway has always sounded like the most fantastical place to me. Far Rockaway. Have you ever been there? No. I believe that's where the Ramones, the punk rock band, came from. <laughs> well, I am correct then. It is a fantastical place. <laughs> and I do know that there is, I think it's the, that might not be the Coney Island stop, but I know Rockaway Beach is up, down that way. So, <laughs> Oh, there you go. There you go. So Dr. Carmen, he became a doctor, as you might imagine, from the fact that um, I'm calling him that, and it's not his first name. And he specialized in, you want to take a guess? Uh, gunshot wounds. Not quite. Uh, you're right with the, you got the first letter, correct? Oh, 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 gastroenterology? Mm, one more try and then I'm going to spoil it for you. Uh, oh, I'm going to have to say uh, geopolitics. Gynecology. Oh, yeah, the study of those wonderful Greek foods. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's definitely what it was. Yeah, yeah, Greek boots. And in 1891, at age 23, he married Florence Amelia Conklin. 
She was 21 and she was the daughter of Platt Conklin. Platt. Dear God, what a name. Say it. Just say it. Platt. Platt. I mean, Platt. Platt. It, it's like the Aflac duck, but, you know, <laughs> shorter. Platt. <laughs> and next time I like trip over something, I'm going to say Platt. Yeah, the next time my kids fall, I'm going to start saying that. Absolutely, you should. (laughs) And uh, ready for another funny name. Uh, Florence's mother was Sarah Seaman Conklin. (laughs) Right. And it's not uh, pronounced Seaman, it's pronounced Simon. Oh, certainly, certainly. Simon, of course. How could I get that wrong? So they had two daughters, Florence and Elizabeth. Obviously, one is named after Flo and one after his mother, Elizabeth. Now, young Florence died in infancy of an illness, uh, but the second daughter, Elizabeth, survived. She was born in 1902. So in 1914, she would have been around 12. Hmm. So for descriptions of of these two, this couple, he is described as rotund and jovial, powerfully built and heavy set. His expression is invariably that of good nature. She is described as stout, which I've seen pictures of her, and she is not. Uh, Looks (laughs) older than her husband, which he's got a couple years on her, so I don't think they're being uh, very forgiving And uh, in 1914, they say her hair is beginning to show gray, which uh, she's around 40. And my hair started going gray when I was 23. Nobody believed me except for my hairstylist who actually looked at my hair and said, yes, your hair is going gray, darling. Yeah, I think uh, I didn't start going gray until I was 40, but that was only because I had kids and a beard and moved to the mountains, all of which require gray hairs and a beard. Yeah, you actually have to like sign something promising that you will go gray one way or the other when you do all of those things. Yeah, no, no question. And honestly, best choice you ever made. And you really don't want to suffer the punishment that is prescribed if you fail to follow through on that. Yeah, it's uh, almost a fine of 35 pesics. Almost. $34.99. Yeah. Dr. Uh, Dr. Carmen, he had just four years ago gone through a little bit of a public scandal. He had in 1910 been the public health officer of Freeport. Mm-hmm. Uh, but uh, he'd been dismissed from the post after being charged by the state with laxity in his duty. Yeah, I said it. Charges were made that public health law was not enforced in the village, that he was negligent in his duties. And after a hearing, it was found there were clear violations of the health laws and disregard for the sanitary ordinances and regulations of the Department of Health. Provisions of the tuberculosis law had not been carried out, and physicians in the village were not required to report cases of contagious disease as they should have been. Hmm. However, there were hints of something a little bit more titillating. 
And this is put, this is from an article that was written, you know, a little less than 25 years after the fact. And it's written in the most roundabout way you could possibly write it. It's hard to decipher it. Okay, here we go. They went into his private life and found no trouble in discovering that he had an abounding love for the fresh pots of Egypt and that the women of his entire community knew that and flocked to his office to have him minister unto them for those written troubles of the mind which he, in the largesse of his experience and his red blood corpuscles, knew how to erase. There are several things in there that I don't know if I pronounced correctly. <laughs> Corpuscles being one of them. Yeah, corpuscles. Um, corpuscles? Yeah, corpuscles. As in corpuscular. Okay. Corpuscular. Okay. So, uh, yeah, the what I what I think of this is I I think he was maybe helping them with sexual help. Uh, uh, on the less scandalous side, maybe sexually transmitted infections on the more scandalous side, possibly abortions. Uh, more than likely erectile dysfunction of some sort. But the women. Yeah. So which would make me think something to do with engorgement because corpuscles tend to be uh, blood flowing a not agents, uh, things. <laughs> <laughs> not agents, but things. Well, that <laughs> yeah, it's that okay. clears it up. <laughs> uh, a minute body or cell in an organism, especially a red or white cell in the blood of vertebrates. So it's just blood cells. Mm. I don't know. I just, I just think they're saying he's a red-blooded man. Uh, who also has a lot of experience as a doctor, so he knows how to fix these women. Maybe also sex. Maybe. It's, it's all possible. <laughs> it's all possible, yeah. So, yeah, there's a lot there. There's also... Um, okay, so I was trying to find some more information on uh, flow, and I was looking her up on a genealogy site that I have a subscription to. And in the birth, marriage, and death certificates section, I found a surprising number of babies named Florence Carmen born in that region during the years that Dr. Carmen was practicing. Six between 1901 and 1916. Huh. That's a little bit odd. Uh, Are you saying Papa was a rolling stone? Well, okay. So here's the thing. There was something hinky going on with birth certificates because the same year that he had his trouble with and was dismissed from his post as public health officer, there was a thing about birth certificates because there was a law that birth certificates had to be submitted within 36 hours of the birth. And he and another doctor were like, dudes, we are so busy just trying to keep mama and baby alive. In those 36 hours, we don't have time for paperwork. And the parents sometimes, I guess, would change their minds about the name and want to redo the paperwork. And, you know, all the, there's all these complications. Sometimes paperwork gets lost, et cetera. And so they were, you know, being fined for this. 
and you know scolded by the the powers that be and such. So that's a possibility that they would just like use her name or whoever's name that they could come up with if parents couldn't come up with a name in time and just be like, you can fix it later. I don't want to have to deal with a fine or something like that. Or I'm thinking of, you know, um, if some of those births were, you know, like say a baby was born in 1908 and also it says died in 1908, maybe these were fudged birth certificates for babies that were actually uh, abortions. Yeah. Possible, possible. I mean, at that time, things were a lot like they are today. Yeah, yeah. There's definitely a lot of possibilities, and I, I can't really narrow it down to what it what it actually is. It's just a strange little thing that really raises my eyebrows. Mm-hmm. So, um, all right. So let's talk now that we have some more information on the principles in the case. Let's talk about the investigation. There's some there's some interesting stuff here. so now first of all the police do determine the first big question the shot did come from outside there's a surgical instrument case that had been near the window and it was nicked and powder stained and there was no way it could have been touched by the bullet if the shooter had been standing inside the room it was too close to the window makes sense So the captain of police says the very day after the murder, this is a long quote, so bear with me. I am now convinced that the bullet was intended for Dr. Carmen and not for Mrs. Bailey. My investigation has shown that from the positions occupied by Mrs. Bailey and Dr. Carmen, the former must have been invisible to the murderer. The latter aimed directly at the doctor's heart. I believe, and the shot would have found its mark had not Dr. Carmen ducked under his operating chair when he saw the pistol pointing at him. The trigger must have been pulled at the same moment without any change of aim. As Dr. Carmen leaped, he left Mrs. Bailey directly in the line of fire, and the result was fatal to her. Had he stood where he was, he, and not she, would have been killed. And it is my opinion that the bullet was fired by a woman. I base this partly upon another discovery we made. We found a safety pin lying on the sill of the window from which the shot was fired. It would be perfectly natural for a woman to pin the pistol to her clothing when she set out upon such an errand as her clothes have not pockets to conceal a revolver. And that's exactly why women's clothes shouldn't have pockets. They took away our pockets so we couldn't murder. And you know what? That's why so many of us are alive today. Uh, So here's to you, Mr. No Pockets. I'm going to be out on the streets tomorrow with my picket sign that says, give us back our pockets so we can murder. But alas, you won't have any gun with you because you'll have no pockets. Exactly. (laughs) It It just kills me. Also, how big... And did that safety pin have to be? And what was it made of? Or was the gun made of like aluminum foil? Like what's happening here that you can clip a pistol to your clothes with a safety pin? So my guess on that is actually you wouldn't actually pin use the pin to put the clothes on. You would take a portion of the clothes and move it through like the uh, the trigger guard or something like that. And then use close the cloth to itself which would then hold the hold the pistol. So like use the safety pin to make a loop out of the cloth. Exactly. 
Gotcha, gotcha, gotcha. Oh, that makes perfect sense. Thank you. This is why I have a co-host because my brain just does not always work. Like when I say does not always, I mean about 85% of the time it doesn't work. <laughs> why is that always the times we record? Uh, I do not know at all because <laughs> I turned my brain off before I step into the studio on purpose. Very smart. <laughs> I want somebody, well, you know, very smart until I step into this room. I want somebody else to have the responsibility of thinking. I just read the words on the page. Yeah, that's how it works. <laughs> In an entertaining manner. <laughs> so now what does the doctor have to say about this? He tells the police. This was his first time even meeting Lulu. But other people say that's not really true. They knew each other well. They were friendly. Some people who remain unnamed would even say very friendly. Very friendly? Very friendly. But again, these people remain unnamed, so we can't really verify how true this is. I see. Yeah. So in other words, it's a bunch of bold-faced lies. Which are actually true. Well, we don't know. We just don't know. So the doc and Florence, they tell police that Florence's whereabouts when the shooting happened were that she was just in bed, drifting off to sleep. Um, That also appears to not be true. It shortly comes out that somebody else had seen her up and about just a few minutes before the shooting, fully dressed. So let's talk about some witnesses that we have here. We have three of them that pop up in the couple of days following the shooting. A maid, a tramp, and a patient. And they're all one person. They're not all one person. No, (laughs) They're very different people, trust me. So the maid was Celia Coleman. She was the doctor's maid. She had a view from inside the house. Just after the shot, she said she saw a woman run into the house and upstairs. She knew the woman because the woman was her boss, Florence Coleman. Hmm. Sorry, Carmen. We've got a Coleman and a Carmen, and the it's gonna get it's gonna get confusing. (laughs) (laughs) So Celia Coleman is the one who tells us that Florence was not dressed for bed. So then we have the, uh, I'm going to refer to him now instead of as a tramp, the unhoused person, Frank Farrell. Uh, He had been been out on the lawn. Uh, He had just been waiting to see if he could uh, just get a meal from anyone in the house. He saw a woman outside the window, saw her yank the screen aside. Then heard the crash of glass and the ringing of a shot. And then what he did is he ran away because when you hear a shot, that's what you do. Like, I would too. He was held without bail as a material witness. But uh, I'm thinking there's actually an upside because um, he gets like three hots and a cot without even having to commit a crime. I mean... That's something. It's not nothing. And material witnesses tend to get paid, too. Oh, really? That's true. And, you know, but none of that works with his last name. I mean, he's feral. He's out in the world. 
<laughs> to to be fair, it's spelled F A R R E L L, but I didn't catch that until you said it. <laughs> Feral, yes, that is that's a rough name for someone who's unhoused and out in the world. That's rough. That's almost that's almost as unfortunate as a woman named Seaman. <laughs> oh, I have so many jokes I can make about both of those, and yet I'm not going to. <laughs> right. So, and then the patient, uh, he'd been in the waiting room. He is named George Golder. And there is something weird here because all of these people have last first and last names with the same letter. Celia Coleman, Frank Farrell, George Golder. Hmm. It's, it's just weird. It's like somebody made them all up, which I swear I didn't. So he said... Uh, He had remained at the Carmen house for half an hour after the shooting and learned many startling facts in connection with the tragedy. So here is his recitation of events. Again, it's a little bit of a long quote, but this is what he said he saw being an eyewitness. At 730 o'clock on Tuesday evening, I entered Dr. Carmen's office to get some treatment. The door was opened for me by Mrs. Carmen. In the reception room at the time were Archie Post and a young woman. I could see Mrs. Carmen and her mother, Mrs. Platt Conklin, on the porch. Platt. At a piano, (laughs) I heard a child playing. Mrs. Carmen said to the child, Sis, stop playing the piano. The doctor is attending a patient. The playing stopped, and then I saw a little girl run onto the lawn. A few minutes later, Mrs. Carmen arose from the porch. She was dressed in white. She walked through a hallway leading through the middle of the house. She returned a few minutes later. I don't know whether she passed to the porch or not. A few minutes later, I heard the crash of glass and then a pistol shot. This was about a quarter to eight. I ran through the front door, down the steps, and to the cement walk. I looked around and saw no one. Then I returned to the doctor's office and went inside. I assisted the doctor in in lifting Mrs. Bailey to the couch. When I ran out, Post went with me. The young woman and another woman patient who had followed me into the doctor's reception room also went out at the same time. Only Post returned to the doctor's office with me. The women disappeared. When Post and I got back, Mrs. Carmen entered the doctor's office. She looked at Mrs. Bailey and then exclaimed, oh, good God. Then she went out. I did not see her after that. I walked out of the office and made an examination of the window. I was the first person to go to the window after the shooting. So probably messed up some footprints there, (laughs) Mr. Golder. So the police have two theories. Theory one, the doctor was boinking a lady patient and the murderer in a fit of jealousy murdered the lady patient of said boinking. Okay. I'm, I'm on board with that one. It Largely seems... because the cops are always right. Yeah. Right. Yeah, it's pretty much. Yeah. That's, that's how it goes. The second, they, they are. the second theory is pretty much that same scenario, but that it's a case of mistaken identity. So the murderer thought that Lulu was the doctor's illicit boinking partner but she wasn't killed lulu by accident sort of like intended to kill the affair partner and accidentally killed lulu instead 
So they're kind of, they're very similar theories. It's just one of them is more of an oopsie. <laughs> yeah, I'm, they both have very valuable points. It could also be someone who just really doesn't like people from Hempstead. It could be, maybe that those town rivalries, man, they get real brutal. I mean, Hempstead is the home of famed malcontent, uh, Francis E. Deck, the disbarred lawyer who would write thousand word letters to anyone, uh, companies, individuals, uh, which were highly anti-Semitic and dark, uh, did that for about 40 years. Wow, that's. Uh, an interesting choice of things to dedicate your life to yeah everyone's got to have a hobby yeah just maybe not that one I'm yeah just, maybe mean, not shooting people who are at doctor's offices yeah yeah maybe like hiking is is nice um get a dog um crochet some shit you know <laughs> no no crocheting is far is far far worse than either murder <laughs> or uh, writing letters. You know, I did hear that Hitler loved crocheting. Yeah, I mean, I have so many hipster Hitler jokes I should make, but won't. <laughs> You've got all the jokes you're going to make, but won't tonight. <laughs> yeah, I'm pulling back because uh, I, I have a book coming out, you know, and if I use my good stuff, what am I going to do at my readings? Yes, the book. You need to make sure you pimp that book. I should have done that at the top of the hour but we'll do more of that at the end of the show too because i've got a spot at the end for you to pimp stuff too i forgot about the book i'm sorry no, <laughs> i'm no. <a> terrible host <laughs> it, i am the worst at this <laughs> no no you are far from the worst the worst is uh there's that one guy who does that podcast and he just kind of drones on for six hours oh yeah that guy sucks yeah, Dan Carlin, Hardcore History, that dude. <laughs> I have no idea you were talking about, so I didn't know who I was insulting. <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so back to the case. <laughs> we went on a little road trip there. Speaking of road trips, <laughs> the doctor took his wife out of town on a little motor trip. Ooh, look at that segue. Uh, they went on a little tour of cities and then headed to his big farm in Raven Rock, New Jersey, which one newspaper described as ultra rural. Uh, it's a good 115 miles from Freeport, so they're really getting away from everything. But at the same time, they're really not because the reporters found them. Now, Flo showed some signs of aggravation at this. Uh, but as the paper said, a few days wandering over the hills with Elizabeth and a couple of dogs restored her completely. After a, a couple of days, they returned home, ready to face the music. But it wasn't music they faced. It was a, uh, a different sort of recording. <gasps> the police had found... A dictograph. That's right. A dictograph hidden in the house. You mean a, a, an Edison shaver? A dictograph. Now, a dictograph, according to Wikipedia, is among the earliest covert listening devices used in the United States. It was an invention of Kelly M. Turner, patented in 1906. It's a microphone in one location and a remote listening post with a speaker 
that could also be recorded with a phonograph. Huh. Yes, 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 yes. So night as early as 1906, you could do wireless. Well, no, not wireless, but wired eavesdropping. <laughs> Ooh, now I want to go back in time and be a spy. Right? You totally could. So uh, they had found that. Now, it had originally been installed under a staircase in the medical office. Hmm. Yes. So this was kind of a hint that maybe Flo wasn't super thrilled with the doctor and suspected that he was up to some extracurricular medical practices. Mm, maybe, yeah, maybe his exams were a little too thorough. You mean they were they were three knuckle? ouch (laughs) ouch i say so uh the police confront flow and they're like look this is your dictograph right and she says yes this dictograph is mine i did install it quote because i was jealous and i had heard many stories of his affairs with women Uh, yeah, she had been spying on him for weeks at this point. And when they asked why she wanted to eavesdrop, which, duh, she said she wanted to learn the truth firsthand. This is how the Daily News put it. And I think this is just a lovely way. She had long had suspicions concerning the process by which the doctor sought to avoid ennui and that there were many other women whose names to her in the velvet disguise of friendly comments from women of her own social set. Uh, the, the way he sought to avoid ennui is how they're describing him having affairs. <laughs> I, I got to be honest, when I'm ennui, I am not hurting. I mean, nothing. right same um she said that people would tease her and him and make insinuations when they would go to parties talk about how lucky he was to have all the girls around him and at his practice she said she wasn't jealous she was just curious now here's the thing the police did not find the dictograph themselves the dictograph company found out about the murder, recognized the address, and contacted the police and said, hey, we installed a dictograph there. You might want to check that out. Mm. So they told the police that a woman had come to them and asked them to buy a dictograph. And let's talk about that little meeting, because it was in person. This was a meeting with General Acoustic Company in Manhattan and it had occurred in May. So she went, she requested a meeting and she sat down with a salesman named Gaston Boissonneau. Boissonneau. Boissonneau, which it's boisson, which is uh drink, I believe. And oh, which is uh water. So I'm going to call him Gaston tall drink of water. Okay, that's a little bit that's a little bit inappropriate because uh obviously he's French and therefore uh just short and angry. He's French Canadian. 
Oh, so he's short and smells of gravy. And a former chief of the Canadian Secret Service. Ah, the unmounted. The unmounted, yes. So she sat down with Gaston, tall drink of water, and said, I'm a dressmaker and my employees are stealing from me. I'm convinced of it, but I want a dictograph to confirm it. So with all of his skills from being the unmounted, um, Mr. Tall Drink of Water was like, ah, you're not a dressmaker and I'm not giving you a dictograph. So I would like to know in what capacity you're actually planning to use this instrument. So she basically whips out the complete and utter truth, who she is, who her husband is, and that she wants a dictograph to spy on him. Quote, I want a dictograph because there are a lot of women visiting my husband's office, and all of them are not patients by any means. In fact, I have long suspected one nurse, and the other night I looked from outside the house through a window into my husband's office and saw him kiss this nurse. Mm. Interesting. Interesting. Don't you think? Quite. And it it does call to mind the classic saying, what a wicked web we weave when first we try but to deceive because eventually you're going to fuck up and everything's going to come crashing down around you like a proverbial house of house of cards. You would think, wouldn't you? So the police are talking to her um, and they're like, so uh, what was it that made you jealous? And she said, well, when I was sitting outside the window or standing rather, I saw the doc give $15 to his nurse, Miss Varence. And then Miss Varence went to him and kissed him. They said, well, did that make you jealous? And she said, no, it made me angry. And they said, oh, the kiss made you angry. And she said, no, the money he gave her made me angry. So she stormed into the office, slapped the nurse, and got the money back. Which I, I kind of like. That's a uh, that's a woman who has her priorities straight. <laughs> I guess they had been kind of on fan- financially rocky ground. Like she was like, "We should have plenty of money. We don't. Where is the money going?" And he would just like shrug and be like, I don't know. We should have plenty of money. You're right. I don't know what's going on. And meanwhile, he's given like $15, which uh, today uh, that would be $900 spent on a purchase. So not chump change, you know? That That's straight up hookers and blow money. I'm, that uh, is. Yeah, absolutely. I'm impressed, actually. <laughs> I'm going to go be a nurse. <laughs> <laughs> so, um the doctor warned her that if she ever did this again, or if she continued to spy on him, all would be over between them. Uh, this happened sometime in the winter, and he insisted he was just lending the nurse the money and uh, made her promise never to go back into his office again. And what she took from that was get a dictograph and spy on him. Uh, so back at General Acoustics, back to that meeting. So at first, Boissonneau was reluctant to help her, mainly because he thought that she was just doing this to get evidence for a divorce. But she was like, no, 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 no. I have a 12-year-old daughter. I would never do that. Quote, I would simply have my own rooms in the house and force my husband, for the child's sake, 
to observe the outward conventions at least. So basically stay together for the kid. So he did as rent. it should be. <laughs> yes, as it should be. So he decided he would rent the dictograph to her. It was uh, a charge of $50 for three months and $11 for the installation. About a month after the initial installation, 10 days before the murder, she contacted General Acoustics and said she really liked it and wanted to keep it. Uh, that would be another $50 for the sale. So she, the total that she spent on this was $111 or $3,483 spent on a purchase today. That's a lot of money. And yet it's it's considerably cheaper to spy on someone electronically now than it was then. Right? Yeah. Well, I mean, we've got a lot more technology and everything's gotten smaller and cheaper. That's a good point. That's very true. So she told them why she wanted to keep the dictograph. And she said, a woman came to my husband's office the other day that I was interested in. I listened, but I did not hear everything for the windows were open. And besides, they spoke in whispers. But I learned something that makes me want to keep the instrument there all the time. They also asked her about guns in the house. She said the doctor did have a 25 caliber automatic and her father who lived there had an old army revolver, but that was it. She didn't even know how to use one and never fired a gun in her life. And I certainly don't know how to how to pin one to my dress just in case I'm traveling. Certainly, certainly not. They never did find the gun, by the way. Hmm. Very interesting. Yeah. So naturally, after all of this was revealed to the district attorney, Flo was charged with murder, except no, she wasn't. What? Right. This from the New York Tribune. District Attorney Lewis E. Smith of Nassau, however, decided late last night after a talk with Dr. and Mrs. Carmen that he thought the presence of the dictograph was merely a remarkable coincidence and that neither the physician nor his wife had any connection with Mrs. Bailey's death. Mr. Smith offered the theory that a maniac was responsible for the deed. Police Captain Derenberg thinks that a woman killed Mrs. Bailey. And then the, the safety pin on the windowsill comes up again because we're really, really, really attached to this whole safety pin thing. Now, the dictograph thing comes out in public. People know about this. Can you imagine your doctor, even just your, your family doctor, you know, your general physician, whatever, not just your gynecologist, has listening equipment? Recording equipment in their office. People had to be shocked, violated, embarrassed, affronted. Like there had to be such a swirl of emotions. He specializes in gynecology. I don't know. It's how I ended up on Pornhub the first time. <laughs> There's got to be a first time for everyone. And, you know, 85% of people, that's it. 85%, by the way, is my uh, statistic number for the night. Uh, yeah, 85% is actually the number of doctors I've seen that are gynecologists. Uh, <laughs> well, that's uh, that's rather odd for a man, but I'm not going to I'm not going to question it. Good call. Now, the interesting thing is doctors often in the past and today 
record what goes on in their offices. They also do not have to disclose that they're recording. Are you freaking serious? I don't like that at all. Well, there's reasons for that. And one is the assumed confidentiality between a doctor and a patient. Do the assumed confidentiality mean that I would assume there's no recording devices present? Well, if you could assume that they're not going to put it external of their own use. Yeah, okay. Uh, just like it's legal for them to film all of their uh, all of their surgeries and so forth. I hate that. Yeah, it's awkward. And I don't know if that's that's worldwide, but I do know in very many spots, because a lot of doctors do use uh, recording equipment and have for years and years and years. Uh, also, doctors are pervs. All of them. <laughs> I, I am pretty certain that at least several of my doctors that I can recall did not have recording equipment in their offices simply because uh, I have heard them through thin walls dictating on a recorder notes from their meetings with patients. Hmm. Which Interesting. itself is a little bit of a violation, but uh, I'm not the one who bought an office with the thin walls, so. Yeah. Uh, any good? Any good info on them? Uh, like any of them? Uh... A lot of lumbago. I don't know what that is. It's a disease of the peniflin uh, pin, uh, where it's become enlarged. An enlarged peniflin pin. That sounds totally. painful. Yeah. It, it it must suck. I I don't have a peniflin pin. I had mine removed in the eighties. Didn't everybody? Uh, it was like a whole big thing. It was a fad. <laughs> <laughs> All right, back to it. So, yeah, everybody, I would personally feel shocked to know that somebody who wasn't the doctor was listening in on their sessions, their appointments. Um, the, the Daily News says she had a line of Freeport's troubles ailments and sins that caused many a flutter in the state community when the knowledge of her feet was broadcast. And yet everyone really seemed to just embrace her. This was a headline from the Brooklyn Eagle. All Freeport hopes Mrs. Carmen is not guilty of murder. Sympathy on every hand for woman. Like this is, there's truly the community rallies around this woman. It is Weird, except maybe they're doing it because they don't, because they're afraid. Yeah, I think it's that the uh, the wife of the editor of the Brooklyn Eagle was obviously fucking the doctor. So, uh, yeah, I do wonder if if maybe they're doing it because she has all the dirty secrets, you know? Secrets, secrets. So, uh, by the way, this investigation prior to the dictograph clue had really been languishing. I mean, they'd brought in bloodhounds from the Long Island Railroad Company because for some reason the railroad had bloodhounds, but the police didn't. Um, capitalism, I guess. And they did catch a strong scent for several miles and then just quit. Uh, they'd gone through his patient files, uh, which... Uh, Hello, HIPAA, modern day uh, laws. Thank you for those. Um, I'm sure they could subpoena those nowadays, though. And talking to people who knew the doctor, which despite all of his 
professional travails, he had no enemies to speak of, no debt, which he, the man did love the ponies. I found a couple of times when he would go to the races in the papers. And uh, but he was a winner. He he tended to win. He ha- he must have had some strategy. I have a strategy for the horses, by the way, too. Uh, bet the best name. No, 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 no. That's that's what they want you to do. That's what they want you to do. No, I won't tell anybody my strategy. I won't even tell my husband. Um, now we're going to have to get you drunk and get it out of you somehow. Good luck. <laughs> we'll, we'll we'll figure it out. I know it's something like uh, oh wait, no, I'm going to guess the tallest horse measured in hands. Uh, bet the one on the inside lane from them. No, it is. It is nothing. It is actually, I'm not going to say anymore because I'm going to give it away. Uh, So back to the story. So there had been all kinds of rumors up to this point. Of course, this is a gossipy little small village, different lines of investigation. And at this point, the New York Tribune tells us the police and the district attorney's office abandoned the mall because the dictograph felt like it was the big moment, the big clue. So um, this uh, from a newspaper, stories of domestic troubles between Mr. and Mrs. Bailey, which had been assiduously traced, were at once treated as not worthy of mention. Rumors that some of Dr. Carmen's warmest friends might have turned into bitter enemies were ridiculed instead of being hopefully followed. The discussion revolving around the question of whether it was a man or a woman who fired the fatal bullet suddenly ceased. Only the question of whether the bullet was intended for Dr. Carmen or for Mrs. Bailey continued to be argued with undiminished interest. Uh, As for those domestic troubles in the Bailey home, apparently it regarded uh, some rumors that Mrs. Bailey had once said she was jealous of the attention her husband was paying to a pretty school teacher, but the couple seemed to get over that just fine and moved on with their life and everything was cool. You know, that's a good, that's a good thing to do to pay attention to your pretty school teachers, because frankly, um, 50% of all marriages end in divorce. So <laughs> you gotta have someone who can take care of the kids. May as well have somebody lined up there, right? Exactly. (laughs) So actually, 10 days after the murder, they do arrest Florence Carmen. She pleads not guilty. And immediately there's already speculation in the press that there's just not enough evidence here. And also immediately Florence Carmen is getting faint and needing sedatives and needing to lie down in a couch in the warden's office and all this, you know, the usual you know, fetch me my fainting couch, etc. It was a simpler time then. Yes. So in the, the inquest, grand jury, all that stuff, a lot of the testimony naturally centers on Flo's whereabouts and her attire at the moment the shot was fired. Uh, Flo and her daughter, um, remember Elizabeth, remember that she's 12 and she's testifying and several other witnesses swear that Flo was in bed uh, in a kimono when the shot was fired. But we have a new witness stepping forward, Ellswood Bards or Bardes, B-A-R-D-E-S. Hmm, Bardes, I'm going to go with. Bardes, yeah. 
Bartis. He's an insurance agent who'd been passing by at the time of the murder, and he testified he saw a woman in a dark skirt and a white shirtwaist running from the doctor's office just after the shot was fired. Now, remember, um, the patient, George Golder, said that Flo had been wearing all white. Oh, well, if she was moving fast enough, it would the blue shift would actually make the dark skirt look white. I don't think she moves at the speed of light. Uh, you would think not. But maybe that's just your recent <laughs> recency bias showing. I mean, I'm making assumptions about her and I really shouldn't be doing that. Maybe she does move at the speed of light. See, now you have now you're thinking like a true crime investigator and this podcast can actually solve some questions. It's important to keep an open mind about the speed at which suspects can move. Can they break the sound barrier? (laughs) I don't know what any of these things are. Uh, So her story is that she was in her room all, all the evening until she heard glass breaking and the gunshot. Then she jumped up, went to the hall, and looked over the banister. In her words, I heard a lot of commotion, and after returning to my room to put on a kimono, I went downstairs. I did not go into my husband's office. We once had a quarrel, and he told me never to look in his office again. So I went upstairs again. So then there's this line of questioning about, you know, kind of the obvious. Why didn't you look in the office? Asked the district attorney. Because the doctor had forbidden me to. Then she's asked, he did not tell you to stay out when there was a dead woman in the office, did he? I did not know anyone was dead. You knew something serious had happened, didn't you? I thought so, but I didn't know what had happened. That's where he keeps his former dead wives. (laughs) Man is Bluebeard. (laughs) Amazing that with this dictograph and everything, she couldn't pick up on that. Jeez. Yeah, you'd think. All that commotion from him storing bodies in the closet and she can't even hear it. Yeah. So. uh. And so, of course, the inquest, grand jury, all of that comes to an indictment of murder. And come October, it's trial time. And this, of course, was the hot ticket in the fall of that year. But everybody, the town is supporting her. Her family is supporting her. Her in-laws are supporting her. Her husband is supporting her. Uh, This from the uh, newspapers, that Mrs. Carmen should ever have had an almost insane jealousy of the doctor seems astonishing when one sees the tender solicitude with which he treated her ever since they have been the centers of public curiosity. He has even gone far out of his way to save her name from the slightest defamation. And Elizabeth, little 12-year-old Elizabeth, is not having to go through any sort of public scorn or ridicule. Another bit from the papers, imitating their elders, the little girls and boys of the suburban town have treated Elizabeth Carmen in a friendly manner. She went regularly to the village dancing class this winter and had as good a time as could be wished. You know, I would also treat my wife with incredible loving tenderness if she shot my side piece I mean, <laughs> kind of an obvious choice especially if there is a question as to whether she was aiming for you 
Good point. Good point. Yeah. And nobody knew where the gun went. <laughs> There's a lot of reasons to be nice to that woman. Yeah, very <laughs> a lot true. Of reasons. And she has all the secrets. 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 So her family, her parents, because they live in the house, a lot of them take the stand. And then Flo herself takes the stand. And this is a really fascinating moment to me because it was a secret to literally everyone except her and one of her several attorneys, including the doctor, her husband. Um, This is how it was described when it was announced that she was going to be taking the stand. No, all shouted in semi-hysteria as Mrs. Carmen Primed for almost four months for this great moment, rushed by her husband and turned quickly around back of the jury box. She was on the first step of the stand before Dr. Carmen and two of her attorneys had finished their protest, but she could not have been stopped. Her anxiety to testify then blinded her for the instant to the formality of being sworn. She was halfway into the chair when a court officer lifted her back by the arm to have her take the oath. Oh! exclaimed her 10-year-old, they get the age wrong, her 12-year-old daughter, Elizabeth, suddenly brought to from a lethargic disinterest. Okay, I'm sorry. I know that she's 12, but who has a lethargic disinterest at their mother's murder trial? Uh, People who have been through this three or four times. (laughs) I guess so. Jeez. But yeah, like, it's amazing to me that, like, this is a secret. They didn't know. That's I don't something. think you can legally do that anymore. I think you actually have to disclose your witness lists. Well, you probably have to disclose it to the court and to the opposing counsel, but maybe not so to your own full defense team and your husband. Maybe. It's an interesting, maybe. it's an interesting choice for sure. It really is. It's it's surprising. Uh, They said that she spoke, quote, in the manner of one who was delighted to clear up doubt on an interesting but not vital matter. Yes, because a murder is an interesting but not vital matter. Yeah, it makes it sound like it's that person at the bar who really wants to tell you about crypto. (laughs) Absolutely. Yes. Oh, God, help me. This is why I don't (laughs) go to bars anymore. She uh, she said, of course, she did not fire a shot through the window. Um, a few things stand out in her testimony. She did say that, um, like backing up George Golder's statement, that she did tell Elizabeth to stop playing the piano. But she said it from her bedroom, not the porch. Um, she said she wasn't in bed in her kimono. She grabbed it after the shot was fired when she went to go see what was going on. But there wasn't really much else there. It was it was very uh it was honestly a little bit boring, <laughs> especially for you know, testimony from uh the accused. But I guess that's kind of what you want, you know? Yeah, you don't really want to be like kind of showy if you're trying to get away with murdering someone. Like uh I'd like to do an interpretive dance. Uh that's <laughs> probably gonna get you convicted. Oh, but boy, would I love to see that as a spectator. Because <laughs> you're a showman. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And also, would I love to describe it as a true crime podcaster? <laughs> <laughs> true. So, the real foundation of this case 
was the witness testimony from Celia Coleman, the servant, and uh, the unhoused gentleman, uh, Frank Farrell. (laughs) (laughs) So uh, it's really interesting how Celia's testimony expands a little bit. Uh, She adds a little bit of spice to it, we'll say. She says that she saw Flo come into the yard just before the shooting. And then the shot was fired and she saw Flo run away after that, saying, my God, I have shot him. Him is a key word there, I think. Uh, But also this feels like like if this were written in a novel or a screenplay, an editor would be like, oh, come on, that's that's too clunky. Take it out. Bit on the nose, don't you think? (laughs) Exactly. Yes. And also, this is like, this hasn't come up in this way before in in the investigation. She's, it it does feel like she's piling it on a little bit and exaggerating, I'm just saying. Yeah, it's a, it's a bad look. Mm -hmm. It really is. Um, And then Elizabeth also testified. Uh, Hers was really simple. She just basically backed up uh, what her mom said from her own perspective. She said she heard a noise ran to her mother's room, found her mother in bed. That was pretty much it. Mm. Florence's mother says uh, she and Florence's sister first ran to the office. There they saw (laughs) Celia Coleman and the body. Then they ran to Flo's room. They saw Flo and Elizabeth. They said the bedclothes were rumpled as though somebody had been sleeping in them or at least laying in them. So it does seem like everything kind of Kind of backs up what Flo is saying, but that could also be, you know, everybody getting their story straight. Yeah, it sounds like this is a a tight-knit community of uh, people who really want to let someone get away with murder. It really kind of does. So, uh, jury deliberation starts. And uh, do you want to guess how long it takes? I'm going to guess 44 hours. Okay, so you're a little bit over, just a little bit. Okay. Okay, so I'm going to guess 13 hours. Yes. So uh, that is some, still a fair bit, which I think I know what the verdict is then. Okay, go ahead and guess. Uh, guilty. Incorrect. Oh, damn it. Uh. All right, so the first ballot was nine for acquittal and three for guilty. They took five votes after that, and every single one was 10 for acquittal and two for guilty. Now, one of the two holdouts said this seemed to be his whole entire reason for holding out and and sticking to his guilty vote. He just could not stand the idea of a wife installing a, quote, mechanical eavesdropper in a man's home without his permission. I guess this means she should hang. I mean... Uh makes yeah. sense to me yeah duh. uh there was also a little altercation between the holdouts and the men who were going for acquittal here's a description of that that i uh i thoroughly enjoyed one of them was a thick-set juror who was convinced that the defendant was guilty his partner in this opinion was a little mite of a man 
At one point, one of the jurors, it was afterward discovered, threatened to throw the little fellow out of the window if he didn't change his vote. At that, the big man went to his aid, and the two of them stood side by side, just as contrary to the prevailing opinion as a mule to his driver's wishes. That's how justice works. Yes. Big with guys and little guys. And threatened, and threatened defenestrations, too. That's true. And defenestration, of course, means cutting off people's ears or no. friends, as they were called in uh, ancient Europe. That's a de- defenestration. Wow, that's hard to say. And it's a word I just made up. A defenestration is throwing someone out a window. I agree to disagree. <laughs> so they tried all night, but they could not come to agreement. And the thing is, there kept on being like false alarms that they had come to an agreement um, all through the night. And Flo kept on getting dragged back to the courtroom because they thought it was the verdict was going to be announced each time. The like her female relatives were like, "Okay, we got to give her time to get presentable. And so they'd make her get all dressed, do her hair and everything and get all set. And then she gets to the courtroom and first the jury wanted coffee. Then they wanted cigars. Then they wanted breakfast. It's like none of these people have ever done court. Like literally none of them. Nobody ever tells them that like, yeah, it's they've been in there for six hours. They're going to want coffee at some point or a cigar. And after 12 hours, yeah, they're going to want freaking breakfast. Yeah. And, you know, today's modern courts don't do that anymore. And that makes me sad. I do believe Jerry's deserve cigars. I don't even really like cigars. I do believe they deserve them. You know, I work in a cigar warehouse. You currently work in one or worked in one? I I work in one currently. It's the uh, literary foundation I work at is housed in the back half of a cigar warehouse. So I see cigars every day. And probably smell them, I imagine. Yes, I do. And they smell like heaven. (laughs) They do smell good. Yes. I do enjoy the smell of uh, an unlit cigar. Uh, I'm sorry, what? (laughs) yeah right so um the jurors were discharged uh as in the they were a hung jury and flo has a total physical collapse in the courtroom she after this is announced she faints honestly i can't blame her you're already under enough stress and then you keep on getting dragged back to the courtroom over and over again all night and having to dress up over and over like it just that seems kind of hellish honestly i say this as a person who anymore rarely wears anything more formal than yoga pants um and rarely puts on anything more complicated than mascara yeah and i of course as a guy who constantly wears uh spats and a monocle uh you know don't understand what that's like at all yeah no you don't know at all no you don't get it (laughs) but my my clothes do have pockets so touche Touche. <laughs> Somebody's been watching The Great. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Which is a great show. Correct. Yes. So um, the headlines say that a second trial is unlikely. And yeah. Flo gets out on $25,000 bail. And it's kind of uncertain where she goes. Some Papers say she goes back to the family farm in New Jersey. Some papers say she goes back to 
the house in Freeport until the second trial, which does in fact happen at her own insistence, really. Um, she was she really wanted that not guilty verdict and she was willing to risk it all to get it. Uh, I would not. Honestly, if I were in her position, I would take a hung jury if the state was willing to just drop it. I'd be like, that's fine. Bye. Hope I never see any of you again. No offense. <laughs> it's been real. It's been fun, but it ain't been real fun. Right. Exactly. So May 15th of the next year, uh, or I think actually her May 10th, her verdict comes. It was a nine days of testimony with really not one single bit of new evidence. They were not even trying or they couldn't even try. I don't know. And so basically, it's just a rerun of the first trial. And uh, when the judge is releasing the jury to deliberate, he tells them basically everything hinges on the maid's story on Celia Coleman. If they believe that, then they should convict Flo. So you get a second shot at guessing the deliberation time. I'm going to guess 19 hours, 35 minutes. All right. Subtract 19 hours and 30 minutes. 44 hours. (laughs) That's not how math works, my friend. Not at all. (laughs) I was an English major and not even that. I'm a writing literature and publishing major. So was it only five minutes? It's only five minutes, but I think we decided on Short Story Short Podcast that we were going to make a a shirt that says something like math is for people who don't read. That's (laughs) correct. That was exactly what it was going to be. (laughs) I need to make that shirt. I do need to get on that. So, yes, five minutes. They took one ballot and they all agreed to say that she was. I'm going to say she was guilty by reason of demonic possession. (laughs) How about not guilty? <laughs> Same thing. It comes. That's what it comes out to. Sure, sure, yeah. I mean, if it's demonic possession, you really had nothing to do with it. You're essentially not guilty. You weren't even really there when it comes down to it. See, you know how these things work. I didn't know you were a lawyer. <laughs> I'm not a lawyer, but I play one on this podcast. <laughs> so a crowd of fashionably attired women applauded the verdict. Mrs. Carmen, for the billionth time in this episode, collapsed. I'm so happy, so happy, wept the vindicated woman when she regained control of herself. Uh, She got hundreds of telegrams of congratulation, many, many bouquets of flowers. And then uh, something else came to her home, something that she had had at her home before that was being returned to her. Think you can guess what that is? Oh, it's got to be her husband. The dictograph. Oh, that's even better. The DA returned the dictograph. And I have to wonder when he returned it at the look exchanged between her and her husband. <laughs> I think the phrase, what, 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 would have been uttered at least once. Yeah, or uh, don't you dare, woman. <laughs> <laughs> yes. There is, of course, some scuttlebutt that she'll appear in a moving picture reenacting the murder with Dr. Carmen playing himself. Um, It's funny because I was taking a quote from the Brooklyn Daily Eagle and I actually typed out an entire quote 
And then I saw the quote underneath it and I was like, no, I want that one because it's better. So this is what I chose here. Uh, Quote, the woman adjudged, I'm going to try that again. The woman adjudged innocent should display the retiring modesty that goes with innocence, natural or conferred. And if lacking in that virtue, it should be forthwith thrust upon her by law or public opinion or both. In other words, get in your place, woman. Yeah, I'm not really entirely sure how we go about like uh, forcing people to um, have retiring modesty through like force of law. Uh, I, I don't know exactly how we, you know, legislate that, make it a judicial thing. I'm not sure. Um, but there's no need to because she says herself that she is not going to do any such thing. It's a bunch of just uh, bullshit and uh, she just wants to be forgotten and go back to her life. I think you mean hooey. Bull hooey. Or balderdash. Another word that was popular with people who are now dead. Balderdash. Platt. That's just what I say. <laughs> Platt. Platt. But nine months later, no, um, really it is <laughs> nine months later, but it's nothing to do with anything that happens after nine months. Um, the papers are all about, oh, her acquittal is being celebrated, but it's just her parents are having a golden anniversary party at their home. They had been married at Amityville in 1866. Wow. That's a- right. That's a weird time. And you might not know this, but Amityville is the site of a very, very famous story. I had never heard of it, actually. I don't know what you're talking about. I think nothing ever happened there. Yes, you are correct. Nothing ever happened there, but it's a site of the story. Yes, it's the site of a story where nothing ever happened. Very, very classic. It's a, it's a Pirandello piece, really. <laughs> One other thing that happened in the immediate aftermath, actually, of this case uh, that hit the papers is Flo's attorney. Married his stenographer. Oh, that was sort of cute. You know what's um, great is that when they're at it, of course, and they're enjoying themselves, at some point he gets to say, Mary, can you read that back to me? And <laughs> it's a different kind of recording of private moments, but uh, <laughs> I'm sure Flo would still approve. Yeah, certainly. <laughs> Fast forwarding into the 20s is when we hear uh, again from the Carmens. In 1923, the doctor was swindled out of $14,000 in a race scheme, which uh, actually has to do with horse racing and not other things that we might think of, by a gang of men who just, you know, stole the money, held them up with guns, and then disappeared. Uh, Then, in 1928, he is arrested for manslaughter and performing an illegal operation, abortion. Oh, hmm. Mm-hmm. So mm. kind of backs up some of my suspicions earlier. He was um, sentenced to uh, four years, but the sentence was suspended on his promise that he would never practice medicine again. He turned over his practice to another doctor who less than two years later was arrested for the same thing, minus the manslaughter because the woman survived. Uh, and then that doctor attempted suicide. So that whole practice was just a mess for like a decade and a half. And 
And what would it have been like for the billing to go on? I mean, really? Right? Feel sorry for those office assistants and whatever. Yeah, it's like if they attempt suicide, are you still got to pay your monthly? I don't understand. Right? In 1938, he sold his house and practice, and it was announced that a $250,000 apartment house with 250 apartments, uh, one for every thousand, I guess, would be built on the site. Measuringworth.com tells us that uh, in money spent on a construction project, that would be nearly $30 million today. Wow. I did take a look at the location on uh, the map and it's just, I, there's not, it kind of looks a little bit abandoned. I mean, there might be apartments there, but they're not, it's not listed as an apartment. I don't know what's going on there. So hmm. interesting. He, he moved in with his daughter, Elizabeth, and uh, I imagine that floated too. And he died in her home in 1939 at age 71. Flo is a little harder to track down as far as when she passed away. She was still alive when the doc died. Her to- Their tombstone, they share a tombstone. It is blank, except for their last name. There's oh. no birth date, no death dates, no first name for either of them. It's just the last name. I did find on that genealogy site an unsourced record listing her death date as June 2nd, 1945. So she thinks that Japan still won the war. Uh, (laughs) She's stuck in that reality. Yeah, that's tough. That's really rough. As for Lulu's family, her widower, William, died in 1940 at age 66. He's buried in the same cemetery as the Carmen's. Their children lived into their 60s as well. They are buried in that same cemetery, too. It is Greenfield Cemetery uh, in Nassau County, which is also where Lulu is buried. Every single principal in this case and their children, including the doctor and Flo's daughter who died in infancy, is buried in that same cemetery. Well, that makes it convenient. It does to if you want to visit them all. Um, A little palate cleanser. Uh, to because I, I don't like it when everybody's buried in the same cemetery. I'm getting a little more comfortable with it, but if somebody I suspect of murdering somebody else, which I do really suspect Flo of murdering Lulu, I just don't like that. I'm getting more comfortable with it, like a little a little sense of peace, like maybe we actually cannot leave all the shit behind us after we're gone. But it's always bothered me. As, so a little palate cleanser. This is oh my heart. Oh, my heart. Louise Bailey's headstone names her as Lulu Bailey. It's very simple. Gives her death date. And then carved beneath that are the words, Little Mama. Oh. I know. And you contrast that with Flo's blank headstone. And I think there's something really beautiful about that. Well, I think actually both of those are what the doctor called the respective women. (laughs) oh man (laughs) that's something else a little bit a little bit a little bit all right i do not have a recipe because i forgot what time we were recording and thought i had like two more hours um but you know i've got a recipe yay yes so i happen to be reading uh 
rundown and other recipes from the Caribbean coast of Costa Rica. And this is a recipe. Iguana. This large green lizard is prepared like chicken or can be cooked like beef in sauce. The females emerge from the forest during April-May to lay their eggs on the beach. Egg-bearing females are often caught during these months. Their yellow internal eggs are prepared as thus. Yellow eggs are washed gently, remove the egg sac, and added to stewing turtle meat during the last few minutes of cooking. They grow tough when overcooked. That's it? Just mix the egg meat or the egg sacks with turtle meats? Correct. <laughs> Are we putting any spices in this whatsoever? Uh, you, you don't have to. The iguana is a naturally spicy animal. <laughs> spicy iguanas uh, probably should be the subtitle of this episode. Uh, hard agree. Very hard agree. Yes. So, okay, that is a hell of a recipe. I don't want, I mean, I can do eggs. I believe you don't like eggs. I despise eggs with a fiery passion. And by the way, that recipe was from, let me find the year here, uh, 1983. Okay, all right, all right. So, a classic. A classic. I'm just... Egg sacks. No, thanks. I might eat. I might eat iguana. I might actually eat iguana um, if prepared correctly, but I will never eat. I, and I love eggs, but I'll never eat anything called egg sacks, uh, even <laughs> if it's the same thing as eggs. Actually, if you call it egg sacks, I won't eat it. It's a turtle meat that really does it for me. I would consider it because, you know, fuck turtles. They know what they do. <laughs> they do indeed. All right. Uh, thank you for that recipe, Chris. And uh, tell us about, speaking of food, tell us about your book that's coming out. Oh, oh, you mean Food and Crime being mm -hmm. released by Pen and Sword. It's coming out in the UK in, um, I believe, July 29th. And in the US, at least via Amazon, on October 8th or September 30th on this page. Both places appear, and I don't know why. But it's available for pre-order now. And pre-orders are very, very important for stupid, stupid reasons, but they are very important. So uh, I'm going to do my best to get a link in the show notes. Everybody listening to this should go and order. Tell us, um, give a little, give us a little spicy preview of uh, one of the cases from your food and crime book. Why, I think I will. I actually have covered a whole bunch of great crime and food related crimes. Uh, for example, I believe one you covered at least once, uh, Mary Botkins, the, uh, the, cro the cross-country uh, death by chocolate. Uh, one of my personal favorite crimes, the uh, horsemeat scandal of the 2010s in the UK that went all around the world. Of course, little things, it covers fraud like the artichoke wars. It covers uh, MLMs. It covers murder, most foul, and a theft, including the theft of thousands of pounds of frozen shrimp. <laughs> but really, the best reason to buy it is the index, because I list every individual mention of cheese and <laughs> what type of cheese I mention. That is fantastic. That's got to be the best index ever. A 
a cheesy index. I love it. <laughs> well, I admit, it's, it's very serious. It's not cheesy. <laughs> We're going to have to have you uh, on the show closer to your release date to talk more about the book. You know, you're not going to be able to stop me. <laughs> <laughs> you will actually fly out to my house and force your way into the studio if you have to. <laughs> Hi, Christy. I'm ready to do a plug for my book. Chris, you're like knocking on the window. <laughs> <laughs> oh, gosh. Oh, yeah. And then, uh, yeah, where I'm going to put a link to your book and the pre-order, pre-order, everybody, pre-order. Absolutely. Do it, do it, do it. Do it. Do it. Do it now. Do it. So, yeah, absolutely. As is tradition uh, on this podcast. Chris, what's up to you this week? You know, this week, last week was a busy, exciting, moving week. And this week I will be doing nothing at all except going to do a little thing I call sleeping, Hmm. which is an experiment. I don't know if I've ever done it before. I have, uh, I've played around a little bit. I wouldn't call it a formal experience, but it's been a more informal experiment with sleeping. Um, and I must say I can recommend it. Oh, that's good to hear. Yes. It's, it's quite excellent. Um, yeah, it's a very efficient and wonderful thing. So, uh, I, um, I found a little a little something when I was browsing through the old uh, old timey newspapers that might turn into a bit of a series on here. Uh, so I'm going to be delving deeper into that to see what I can make of it, and I think it's going to be interesting. So that's what I'm doing a little teaser for you. Oh, give us a one word preview. Lover. <gasps> dun dun dun. <laughs> there you go. One word preview. I like that. <laughs> that could go in so many directions. <laughs> it sure can. <laughs> All right. Um, don't forget our about our Patreon. That's patreon.com slash old timey crimey. Uh, there's supposed to be a thing where you can do a like trial subscription. I don't think I have it set up yet, but I'm going to try to get that set up. I'm sorry. <laughs> Oh, they sent me an email and now I don't know. So, but yes, um, just five bucks a month and you get so many back episodes of our bonus uh, episodes where we talk about things like liver eating Johnson and uh, a man with name, uh, the name Harm Drenth uh, and a woman with the name Agnes Magnus daughter. Uh, just people with names is mainly what we talk about. People with names a lot of people have names but very few people are named uh magnus totter uh in general very few yes it's a it's a rare name i must say so uh, of course you're french then it's it's every (laughs) other person yeah right so okay um i guess that is everything so um yeah uh, duh. words of advice from us here at Old Timey Crimey are don't um, install a dictograph in your husband's doctor's office. Use a more modern technique. Absolutely. 100%. Don't be stuck in the past with a dictograph. Join us here in the 21st century with like, you know, air tags and crap. So 
All right. Uh, that is it for us. And thank you for joining us. And thank you, Chris, so much for joining us. And you've been a wonderful guest. Hey, it is a pleasure, an honor, and a financial obligation because the check did <laughs> so. Financial obligation. I don't even know what people are going to think of that, but I'm going to just let it go by and let them think. So, <laughs> all right, everybody. Bye. Sources, uh, Find a Grave, uh, the Wikipedia article on Freeport, and from newspapers.com, thank you, Chris Garcia. The Brooklyn and, uh, Times, that's you. Oh, yeah. The Brooklyn Times Union, the Columbia Record, Washington Herald, Pittsburgh Post, Times Union, maybe the same thing as the Brooklyn Times Union, Standard Union, Brooklyn Daily Eagle, Daily News and the Democrat and Chronicle. And my sources where I was just sitting here listening. Yep, your sources are your ears. Yeah, they're you. <laughs> <laughs>